forgot to collect, so I'm going to do it now. My apologies. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose son fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted as we are, but did not sin, give us grace to discipline ourselves in submission to your spirit, that as you know our weakness, so we may know your power to save. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You may be seated. Last Saturday, I sat in a hospital room with my comatose brother-in-law who suffered a massive stroke three weeks ago. He is dying. And the fact that he is 86 provides little comfort. Then last Monday, I attended the funeral of a first cousin of mine, remembering that we had been each other's groomsmen. On the Sunday in between, I was in London drugs with my grandchildren, two of them, looking for Valentine's Day cards for their parents. We had fun. And once chosen, the youngest Addie said, do we have to wait for Valentine's Day? Love is filled with anticipation. Death, not so much. And as I looked at the Hallmark-filled shelves, I noticed there weren't any Happy Ash Wednesday cards, or Have a Good Lent cards, or no cards that said, may the Pascal mystery be with you. Hallmark hasn't found a way to capitalize on that yet. They skipped it and went straight for the Easter Bunny. And yes, like me, you probably noticed that Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day came together this year. That hasn't happened in 70 years. And Easter falls on April Fools. But that's another sermon. I saw some cards on Facebook that tried to celebrate both. Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday. Roses are red, violets are blue, Lent is beginning, no chocolate for you. <laughs> or my favorite, won't you be my Valentine, you miserable offender? <laughs> or the one I, in my mind, spoke to my spouse, remember you are but dust, but awfully lovable dust. And I was also sent a little Charles Schultz cartoon, which I shared with, uh, in our quiet day yesterday. And uh, it's a picture of Charlie Brown sitting with Snoopy on a dock, looking over this beautiful lake scene. And Charlie Brown, ever the pessimist, says, Snoopy, you know that one day we're going to die. And Snoopy beautifully says, yes but on the other days we will not. <laughs> Ash Wednesday does ask us to consider that we are dust, but that we are, that we are finite, and that life holds both. And this tension inevitably asks us the question of what theologians call theodicy. 
In simple form, that question is this. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Theodicy seeks to answer the question, and I've read most of them, and yet, no matter which one I find myself thinking of, it never gives me an absolute satisfaction, and yet I try. Years ago, when I was in seminary, we, I helped plan a family camp, and it was young people all the way to seniors, and we wanted to do an exercise that could involve everyone from 12 and up. And so we divided people into groups of five, a young person, an older person, mixed them up male and female, and we gave them big pieces of chart paper and felt pens and said, we want you to imagine that you are God. And on this chart, create a world that is better than the world that we have. But there's three rules. Rule number one, you're all powerful. Rule number two, you're all loving. And rule number three, your greatest gift to the creation is free will. And as they started this exercise, I was walking around and I saw this earnest 12-year-old boy who was really into it say to his group right at the beginning, I want to create a world where everyone loves one another. Well, what a great sentiment. But which rule does it break? And as each of the groups went through the exercise, they came up with all kinds of things they'd love to change, but also with the realization that they couldn't change anything without breaking one of those rules. And I remember or recall that those of us in the older generation tended to want to defend God's power. And we would sacrifice God's love for God's power, not always, but often. The younger generation wanted to defend God's love, and they would sacrifice God's power. But regardless, no one could find a way to change things. That's the question of theodicy. A brief summary of some of the main theodicies. There's the finite God theodicy, and it, maintain, it maintains that God is all good, but not all powerful. And it suggests that power is only good if I have more of it than you do. But if I hold all the power, the only loving thing to do is to give it away. And so in this theodicy, the incarnation is seen as God giving up power as an act of love and entering the human condition. That holds some interesting ideas and thoughts and also creates some issues. Then there's the best of possible worlds theodicy. This is a very traditional theodicy, and it argues that the creation, the way things are, is the best of possible worlds, perhaps the best that God could do trying to keep all those rules in mind. And then my childhood favorite that I have long sought to abandon and sometimes succeeded, the original sin theodicy. It holds that evil came into the world because of humanity's sin. And it has led to a fire and brimstone God and worms such as I theology. A God who must be appeased, not a God who loves. There's the ultimate harmony theodicy. It justifies evil as leading to good things in the end, to long-range good consequences. 
I don't know about you, but in my experience, that's a little hard to swallow in the light of so many things like school shootings. Then there's the reincarnation theology. It believes that people suffer evil because of the wrongdoing in a previous life. I have had some deja vu experiences, but that one causes me some grief as well. The contrast theodicy holds that evil is needed to enable people to appreciate or understand good. I don't know about you, but when bad things have happened to me, it hasn't in the moment at least made me appreciate the good. It is overwhelming, and so it has its limitations. And the last one I'll mention, there's dozens more, is the warning theodicy, and it rationalizes evil as God's warning to people to mend their ways. And again, we're left with a God that we must appease. And the irony is that no matter how much we think we have explained or understood these theodicies, they don't exempt us from any experience of death or suffering in the midst of life. And Lent and Easter tell us that God in Christ incarnate also was not exempt from suffering and death. Somehow there was no other way. Love trumps power, no pun intended. Love necessitates free choice, and we live in this tension. And perhaps we ask the question, does God in his loving power live in that tension too? I don't know. Our texts are filled with this tension this tension of theodicy. In the epistle, we see Christ suffering, and yet somehow that brings us to God. Christ is put to death in the flesh, but somehow he's made alive in the spirit. The baptism of John was to clean the body, but Christ's baptism was for, the text says, a good conscience. Not a conscience in the sense of choosing right and wrong, but conscience here means an orientation towards God, that our baptism is an invitation to turn our orientation towards God. In the gospel, Jesus is baptized by John, someone who in our theology needed no cleansing and yet submitted to the cleansing of John's baptism. And then he hears this voice that he is called the beloved, an audible voice. And yet, instead of that voice leading him to, or responding to, or representing his ordination and the kickoff of his ministry, which would be my temptation if I heard those voices, let's get this thing done, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he's there, wild animals threaten him on one side, and yet on the other side, angels wait on him. And then after that, in our gospel reading, we see that John has been arrested. And yet, out of that, Jesus walks into the temple and declares good news. The kingdom is near. And it doesn't feel very near. And this is the question of theodicy. Our Old Testament passage touches on it as well. The consequences of evil bring a destroying flood. And yet in the ark, everything belongs. 
Everything is interconnected. All of God's creatures are there together. And I think perhaps the message of Lent is that our faith is asking us to live this tension and to notice the colors, the rainbow that holds all the colors of this good news that somehow in living in this tension, we are the beloved. Theodicy. If you think of theodicy in your own life, I'm betting, like me, you think of what I'm going to call defining moments. Things that have happened in your life that since then you define your life by before that and after that. And these can be both hard things and beautiful things. Again, the tension. Nowhere in this tension is this seen more in my mind than in Jesus' temptations, which are talked about in our gospel passage. He's just been ordained. Voices have said he's beloved. And instead of kicking off his ministry, he listens to the spirit that leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the personification of the abuse of free choice. And these are the temptations of pride. Later in his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we'll see as we near Easter, will be the other temptations of despair. Henri Nouwen talks about his three temptations. The first one being turning bread into, or stones into bread. Now, if you've just been called the beloved and you want to minister to people, why wouldn't you do that? It's counterintuitive not to. Part of God's command is to feed my sheep. And yet, Henri Nouwen says, the temptation, the prideful temptation inherent in that is to be relevant. To be relevant. Relevance looks good on me. Jump off the temple. Get the angels to catch you just before you hit the ground. Now and suggests this is the temptation to be spectacular. You'll get on TV. You'll be famous. And the people will come. You've done this spectacular public miracle. And the last temptation, I'll give you all of this, the temptation for power. And Jesus says no to all. He has the power inside of himself. It's not out there to be grasped. It's inside of himself. And it was there when he heard that voice that says he was loved. That's how we try to live in that tension, to live from that place of our own belovedness. And when we can, it doesn't change our circumstances, but I do find that it is easier for me to enter the wilderness and the suffering of my life when I know that I am loved. Lent and Valentine's, a time to remember that you are loved, even as you remember all the things, all these things will turn to ash. And what remains after everything turns to ash is love. This is a new orientation. When my father died a couple of years ago, my 10-year-old granddaughter Bailey came to me and asked me a very profound question. Papa, she said, how old will I be when you die? Isn't that a profound question? It totally changed my orientation. 
Instead of thinking, how long will I live? It became, what in her life will I participate in? It became about a connection, a relationship of love. And that is what Lent is inviting us to. It begs the question of how will I love and how will I let myself be loved? Our texts, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, Valentine's and Lent, invite us to live into our belovedness. We live in the tension that someday we are going to die, but on the rest of the days we will not. And I suggest that only divine love gives us the grace to live in that tension. And in Christ's birth, death, and resurrection, we have a God who joins us in living that tension. May Lent and Easter give us this courage to know that we will die, but on all the other days we will not. Amen.